Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Let's pretend none of that happened. (laughs) So today's talk is on the paramita of virya, which is effort, energy, or enthusiasm, um, or some combination of all three. And as Michael's been saying with the other paramitas, this isn't just ordinary effort or energy or enthusiasm it's gone beyond. So whatever your idea of those things is, it's just beyond that. Yesterday, Michael talked about Kshanti Paramita, or the Paramita of Patience, or as Michael called it, composure, which I really liked. So really sitting with what's happening which is also known as the third noble truth, or knowing what it's like to feel calm, knowing what it's like to be in a place of non-reactivity. So virya paramita comes after, it comes next after patience paramita, because what happens after you stop and after you put some space around your habits and your usual way of being reactive is that you're left with a question of how to act, how to go forward, um, and how, how to like move about in your life in a way that's creative and in a way that helps people around you or helps other beings around you. This is also known as the fourth noble truth, which is usually presented as the path or the Eightfold Path, Um, but you could think of it much more simply as just basically, how do we act? How do we respond to every moment as it comes to us? How do we respond to each situation that we find ourselves in? But then the question is, when we decide to act, and especially when we decide to act in a way that's, that we feel is needed, how do we help people without getting burnt out? Or how do you devote yourself to something like, like climate change or 
wealth inequality or these big things, racism, how do you work on these things which probably aren't going to get solved in your lifetime without getting disheartened? So I wanted to talk about monarch butterflies. Um, do you guys know monarch butterflies? Yeah. Do they are they around here? I haven't seen any, but maybe I missed them. Monarchs, monarch butterflies. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <Talk about them. laughs> um, so monarch butterflies are the only insect in the world that has a migration. Um, and if you're really nerdy and you're going to call me out on this. It means they go both ways. They go south, and then they go north again. They don't just go one way. Um, so monarch butterflies, um, most of them are born in Mexico around February. And then they start flying north. Some of them go towards, um, some of them go like through Mexico, up through Texas, and head like straight north towards Toronto and I guess a little bit east. <laughs> and then some of them go towards where I live in New York. Um, but the ones that are born in Mexico, they don't make it all the way. They stop somewhere in like, I don't know, Texas. And each butterfly lays one egg, just one egg. And that egg turns into a caterpillar and then the caterpillar like spends some time just like slowly crawling around and eating a lot. And then it turns into a chrysalis or a cocoon. And then that turns into another monarch butterfly. And then somehow that butterfly knows to just keep going north. And it actually takes like three or four generations to get all the way north. Then there's another generation that's born in the summer, and then another one that starts the journey back down south in the fall. Our culture is so goal-oriented. It's so focused on achievement. But what if we could live like the monarch butterflies and just live your life in a way that's not just about you and not even just about your lifespan, but that's about something so much bigger and about so many other beings around you? It's kind of like farming. Um, the last few years I've been working on farms and it's like incredibly hard work. It's really hard work. But also it's, it's like so inspiring. And the reason it's so inspiring is because when you're working on a farm, you, you can't help, like you're working outside, you're working with plants, you're working with the seasons. And you can't help but like really feel like you're part of a bigger picture. And by bigger picture, I mean like birth and life and death 
and then birth again. And the way that time is circular and the way that like each year repeats itself or you know each year repeats the year before it and it's completely different and completely new and you can i feel like you can kind of feel that being here on this land yeah have you guys felt that at all It's also the same with your breath in meditation practice, right? Like the breath repeats itself and every time it's new and you're in a new moment, a new moment, a new moment. So this kind of inspiration, this kind of feeling of being in a bigger picture it gives us it gives us energy being really stuck and really inside of like us a, a narrower version of our life makes us tired there's another thing about farming that's um, inspiring to me which is that it's just really magical um, so like, for instance, the first thing that, um, that in New York, the first thing that we plant um, the earliest in the year, so actually around February or, or March when it's still like really cold. And in New York, there's like a few feet of snow on the ground. Um, we plant onions. So I don't know if you guys know what onion seeds look like. They're just really, they're really small. They're, they're just like really tiny black seeds. And you just put a bunch of them in some soil, in a tray of soil. Um, and obviously the way that you plant them in the winter is that you have like a greenhouse or hoop house. And then like in April, you have, you put these little, basically like little rocks in the ground. And then in April you have like little green, tiny little shoots. And then you take those and you go outside and you put them in the ground. And then in the summer, you have big onions, like a giant onion. <laughs> like, it's kind of amazing. Um, <laughs> and like, you're harvesting these onions in the summer and you can't even imagine what it was. It's like so hard to even imagine what it was like when there were two feet of snow on the ground and you were like bundled up in your jacket, like planting the seeds. And there's a lot of things in life like this. There's a lot of ordinary things that are actually just totally magical. Um, like blackberries on the side of the path and um, that view looking out on the farm with those, you know what I'm talking about? Where those hoop houses are, and you just see down the hillside and the willow trees in the distance. Or just when you walk by on the road and someone bows to you, and just like feel it, you know? Just to say that 
this is also inspiration. And inspiration is so important for Virya Paramita. This is where we can get our energy from. It's also what happens when we relax. Like what Michael was talking about yesterday, we have composure, we're more receptive, we've softened a bit, and these things can come in. The magic can come in. Then we can get inspired, and then we have the energy to really do something. Can I tell you one more cool thing about monarch butterflies? Okay. So, um, for a long time, no one could figure out how these, I mean, this is like a butterfly, right? Like, tiny little. And somehow, even, even though it takes many generations, like, that butterfly is going a long way. Um, so for a long time, they couldn't figure out, like, how they were flying so far. Um, and, then they, and then scientists, they, whoever, figured, <laughs> figured out that um, basically they wait for these, like, thermal, um, lifts in the, in the, it's basically like an updraft, and they just wait around for one of these updrafts, and then they go up, and then they just ride the air, like this, all the way to Mexico and back again. So in other words, they wait around with composure. <laughs> and then they flap their wings a little bit, and then they just relax. And then there they go. So Virya Paramita is not just about working really hard, although hard work is definitely important and needed. Um, but it's not just, but it's not hard work just in the sense of like buckling down and powering through. It's also about relaxation. A couple years ago when I first decided to change careers and start to, start to do farming, um, I interned at this place called Stone Barn Center, which is in New York. And it's kind of a it's kind of an amazing place. Um, the farmer, the head farmer there, the guy who runs the organic farm, he's like he's 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 kind of like the Michael Stone of organic farming. <laughs> like he's like he's like really creative about it and like coming up with like new ways to do things. And he's like always I don't know like he's always kind of like um, he's just really curious about it all the time. Um, and he has like these really innovative ways of doing things. And they have this amazing greenhouse there. Um, it's, the greenhouse covers about half an acre, which is really big for a greenhouse. Um, and one of, the, one of the kind of practices that they have here, have there, is that they like, the beds, the garden beds in the greenhouse <coughs> are, they just have a really beautiful system for turning them over and prepping them for the next uh, crop. So I was an intern there, and one of my jobs was to prep the beds. And um, the way that I would go about doing that was like this multi-step 
process, right? So first you'd have to like, first of all the, well first you'd have to clean all the, whatever the crop that was already in there out. So say there had been lettuce there, it had already been harvested, you'd have to pull all those plants out and then rake them up. Then you would shovel the pathways because the dirt from the bed would have like settled like kind of flattened into the pathways and then you so you'd scoop it out of the pathways and back onto the bed and each bed was about a hundred feet long three feet wide um, then you would like sprinkle some compost on top and some kelp on top then you would take this thing called a broad fork which is like a big wide rake with these like um, not a rake like a big wide fork <laughs> with these long prongs in it like about 12 prongs and you'd go through and poke holes in the whole bed about every six inches so that it had air going through the soil. Then, I'm get, I am getting to a point. <laughs> then you would take this like really wide, flat wooden rake and all the soil that you'd been like, you know, muddling up, you'd have to take, you'd flip over the rake and then flatten out the soil so that it was like perfectly flat. And this guy, Jack Algier, who's like the Michael Stone of farming, he was like really particular, like it really needed to be flat. Like no, no like tilting to one side or like higher on one end of the bed than the other. And it was so hard to do, like it was so hard to get that dirt to be flat. <laughs> like you'd push it and it would just make one hill and then like you'd push it to the other side and it would just make that, that hill on the other side. Um, so what I learned was that I just really had to like relax. And also I really had to pay attention. As soon as I spaced out, or as soon as I tried to just like work quickly and get through it, it just wouldn't work. It would, I could never get it flat. But when I really just like took my time and I didn't think about how long it was gonna take and I just like stayed there with that dirt and that rake, it would get nice and flat. And it was hard work. Um, so Virya Paramita is about balance. It's like your finger and your thumb in meditation. You're not letting yourself space out so they come apart. But you're also not like pressing so hard that you're straining. It's just this balance, effort and ease. At the same time, it's not about getting it perfect. Um, a few years ago, I before I met Michael, I was practicing in um, at this place called Karma Trolling in Vermont. I don't know if any of you know it. Um, doesn't matter if you don't. <laughs> and uh, I used to do these 
month-long retreats there, 28-day retreats. And um, the way it worked was like the, so the, the retreats were four weeks long and the teachers would do all the jobs that we do, like the bell ringing and the timekeeping and um, the, the chanting and the drum. All, all that stuff, they didn't let the students do that. The teachers would do all those things until the fourth week. And in the fourth week, they would let students give it a try. So um, the fourth week rolled around, and they asked me to do this job of gatekeeping, which is kind of like, you know when Missy rings the bell for, um, where's Missy? There she is, she's over there, yeah. So Missy rings the bell for us to come to practice. It's like that, except because it was a Tibetan tradition, it was like a hundred times more complicated. Um, so like the way that you would do it is you would go to this, there were two gongs, there were two bells. So I'd go to the outer gong, which was like kind of far away from the meditation hall. And instead of just like counting a number of bells, you had to like say this chant and every line of the chant, you had a mala, and you had to like go, you know, count the beads in the mala, and after every line of the chant, you hit the gong. And then you do that like for half a mala, and then you move to another gong, and then you do that all over again, and then you're supposed to do this whole other series of bells, and then everyone, oh, and it's not like here where everyone just comes in, everyone waits, so everyone's lined up, and they're waiting for you to finish this whole rigmarole. <laughs> And then, and then when you're done, they go in. So, <laughs> so they were like, Caitlin, you can do the gatekeeping. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna get this so perfect. Um, so <laughs> I don't know what happened, um, but somehow I was, like something went wrong. Maybe I was like <laughs> chanting too slow, or I was saying four lines instead of one line, but I was like late, like really late. And all these people were waiting to get into the meditation hall. And the teachers came up and they were like, pick it up. <laughs> they were like, just skip to the part where you ring really fast. And I was like, okay. And I felt so overwhelmed. I was like, okay. And I rang the bell. <laughs> and everyone went in. And then also the gatekeeper's job is to um, you don't go in, you actually do your meditation practice outside the doors of the meditation hall. The idea is that you're kind of protecting the, the door from people exiting and coming in. Um, and I was so upset, I just, I just lost it, like I just cried. I wanted to get it perfect so badly. And I mean I completely messed it up, like it was really a disaster. Um, yeah, and I was like, I mean, also, bear in mind, I had been meditating for three weeks. So, you know, I was, I was crying because I wanted to get it perfect, and I didn't. And then I was crying because, like, I realized that, like, I just needed to let go of that part of myself that I had been holding on to for so long, like, that part that just needs to get it so perfect. So maybe, I don't know, maybe you have felt something like this, too? Like, when you forget to bow, 
in the meditation hall, or when you walk into the um, into the barn with your shoes on, and then you have to turn around and go outside to take them off again. So when that happens, like it's okay, you know. Um, you don't have to be perfect. And um, when you mess up, you don't have to beat yourself up. Because when you do that, that means you're separating from your experience. So when you mess up, just mess up. And then you just meet the next thing that's happening. You don't have to hold on to it. We spend so much energy avoiding. We think that we're actually conserving energy or protecting ourselves by avoiding the things that don't make us feel good or that cause pain. But actually, it's the opposite. It's like this. It's like this in meditation. Have you noticed? Um, like, we've been avoiding things for so long that we don't even know anymore what it is we're avoiding. Like sometimes I sit down to practice and I'm like, okay, and I feel this. I feel like this familiar tension in my shoulders. And then I just know, I'm like, what am I avoiding? <laughs> I don't know what it is yet, but there it is. And so then I just have to like sit and breathe and like the pain is there and I just sit and breathe and I can feel that I'm like tense, but I don't know why. And then eventually it just bubbles up, like there it is whatever it is. <laughs> and the point with meditation is not so much like, it's not so much to like figure it out or like get to the bottom of the story or analyze it. It's just to keep practicing that the patience of letting it arise and letting it go. So just keep connecting and stop separating. And that gives us energy. It really does. Like all the effort that you've been putting into avoiding suffering and making yourself comfortable, you could just like give up that whole project and like imagine Imagine like all the energy you would have to just do the things that are like right in front of you. You could just sit. You could just clean the toilets. You could just bow. Um, and we can enjoy things. It's like the monarch butterfly. Like you have to just get really soft and really still and then you can feel the breeze, and then you can ride it. 
So it's really important to sit still. It's really important to come on retreat like this and know what it's like to really slow down. And it's really important to take care of yourself and go inwards and be still. At the same time, it's not always about going slow. When Michael and I were meeting with the woman who runs Stoll Lake about um, just about logistical things, she was telling us about, she gave us the list of jobs that you would all do. And <laughs> she mentioned that she used to give the jobs, she used to give um, meditation retreat participants jobs in the garden, but it drove the farmers crazy <laughs> because they would, they would just be told to like pick peas or something and they'd be like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so slow. <laughs> so like, <laughs> sometimes you have to like work hard and like pick the peas, you know? Um, it's like the fast walking. A lot of times there's resistance to fast walking. You know, people are like, I thought mindfulness was like all about going really slow. Why do we have to walk so fast? Um, but this is such a useful thing to be still and to be really slow and then to hear that clack and go fast and be in a new situation and meet that situation and meet that new speed. In other words, like different situations call for different kinds of energy. And the, and the bodhisattva, because they can really feel what's happening, they can meet the situation with the appropriate amount of energy. Like sometimes it's time to be a caterpillar and just like walk around and like munch on plants. And sometimes it's time to be in a cocoon and sometimes it's time to like grow some wings and get out there. So I wanted to mention, um, I wanted to tell you about some resources that are useful for cultivating virya or for keeping inspired and keeping your energy up. One is rest and like really taking care of yourself, getting enough sleep, eating good food, spending time alone, things like that. Another one is practice. Um, you need to sit still so that you can feel non-reactivity, so that you can respond with the right energy and with the right response. Um, yeah, and I hope when you guys go home that you'll keep practicing, because it's really good to practice here where we're slow, but it's also really good to practice when you go back to your life and it's fast. Um, but don't think any more about going home yet. <laughs> <laughs>
Another resource is Sangha, or your friends. Um, it's really important to be with people that give you energy. It's like when you're sitting in the zendo and you just feel so exhausted and then you look across and you see the person across from you just looks so still and it can inspire you to keep going and to keep practicing. The other resource for virya is dharma, which is basically your entire life and every single moment. And I think Michael talked about this too, that like each moment is so big that you will never figure it out. You will never understand it. And it's, it's just so good to be, it's so inspiring and gives you so much energy to just be curious about that moment, even though you will never figure it out. Just keep meeting each moment and like wonder, like what is this about? Um, be curious about unsolvable mysteries. Being organized and solving problems and like science and all these things are really important. But on a deeper level, like trying, having to have a solid answer for everything is totally exhausting. So having an open mind and being curious and not always needing an answer gives you energy. So I would like to close with a poem. Um, this is just a piece of a really long poem called uh, The Mad Farmer's Liberation Front by Wendell Berry. Some of you are smiling because you know it. Um, and the title of the, the poem, I think it's worth noting that he's kind of saying like, you have to be a little bit crazy in the eyes of our culture in order to be free. And I think about that a lot on retreat because <laughs> sometimes I think what it would be like if like my dad could see <laughs> <laughs> And he would just think we were all totally crazy. Um, okay. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophecy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Should I do the thing where I read it again? <laughs> Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, 
that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophecy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.